Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel, And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. John, hello. Hi, Milton. John, listen, I have a question for you. Have you ever seen a UFO? I think I might have seen a UFO once when I was like 12 in a scout camp, but it's quite possible I was drunk. Christ, you Scots. Jesus. Right, listen. UFO sightings in Scotland have gone up 20% in the last year. I haven't looked at the English sightings, but I'm sure they've done the same. Um, and here's something else I bet you didn't know, despite the fact that you are from Glasgow and you should know this stuff. There's a town in the central belt called Bonnie Bridge, which is one of the most well-known UFO sighting places on Earth, right? 300 UFO sightings a year. So Texas, New Mexico, Bonnie Bridge. So why is Bonnie Bridge like UFO Central? Absolutely no idea and close to not caring. So, um, you know, that, I'm just putting that out there as a little bit of trivia for anyone who wants something to talk about over dinner tonight. The key point is that, and you and I have discussed this before, alien sightings, UFO sightings go up everywhere when societies are tense, when people feel uncertain, when there is change afoot, when there is unrest, right? So UFO sightings in the US went up massively just before Donald Trump was erected. Uh, hang on, Donald Trump was elected. <laughs> and there was, I don't know if you remember when we were, we were both working at Dennis Publishing at the time and they owned a magazine called The 14 Times. Do you remember their, their headline? Is Donald Trump an alien? Yeah, I think they stole that headline from National Enquirer. Anyway, so there is this correlation, which I was uh, telling a, an acquaintance at the Bank of England the other day that they really should put in their models because it's kind of handy. There is a correlation, we won't go as far as causation, between rising sightings of UFOs and political and economic change. I just wanted to, to let you know that and put it out there because obviously there's a lot of political and economic change going on at the moment. We're at this sort of turning point that we've talked about before, demographically, fiscally, monetary policy, uh, everything, everything is at a, at a inflation interest rates. Everything's turning, right? Actually, I suppose the, the other interpretation is that people see UFOs because whenever times are disturbed, that's partly because geopolitics is in upheaval. And maybe governments around the world are like testing new weapons, like stealth bombers and things like that. Huh, so you think that there's secret jets in the sky? You know, welcome to uh, John and Merrin's uh, conspiracy theory podcast. Yeah, that would be very popular. I think we shouldn't not dismiss it. Like, you know what? We get a lot more listeners than we do talking about inflation and interest rates. Um, listen, tell me, John, there is a lot of change. What's the thing that you've seen this week that, to you, represents the, the biggest change? Biggest inflection. Well, much as I'd like to say the biggest inflection point is the drop in house prices, which uh, are falling apparently for the first time since 2012. I actually think the kind of biggest thing that happened this week was the Brexit deal. Um, 
I know we've been going on about Brexit for a long time, but I think that this could be a catalyst for long neglected UK equities to finally attract some of those flows that have been vanishing from them over the past seven years. I mean, you can spend lots of time arguing about the economic impact of Brexit, but I think it's pretty clear that over the last seven years, global fund managers at least have taken it as an excuse to just put the UK in the too hard bin. And I think that that will be much more difficult now, particularly as, you know, everyone's looking for new things to invest in and cheap assets to invest in now that the kind of fangs aren't the only game in town. Excellent. Finally, and don't forget, everybody, that if you're investing in equities, the best hedge against inflation is your dividend income. And where do you get the best dividend income? The UK, of course. Yes, the UK. Right, onwards. Thanks, John. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset-Webb. This week, our guest is Dr. Pippa Malmgrove. She's an author, an expert in geopolitics, and has served as special assistant to President George W. Bush as an advisor for economic policy on the National Economic Council. And she's a former member of the U.S. President's Working Group on Financial Markets. And she knows something about UFOs, by the way. We begin our conversation discussing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Pippa, thank you so much for joining us today. It's absolutely brilliant to have you on. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. We are talking um, around the first year anniversary of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Now, when that began, it looked like a little war, a localized war, a local conflict. Um, But a lot has changed in the last year, right? And I've been looking at some things that you've been saying and you've been writing and what looked like a local conflict is expanding globally. This is not a local conflict anymore, is it? No. And I wrote a piece in October 2021 uh, which was very boldly entitled World War Three Has Already Started. And that really sounded crazy at the time. But I think we're now seeing that this is not about one country. It's not about one location. It's a grand strategy. And it's pitting the West, NATO, the United States against an aligned Russia and China. And also, just to be clear, because the phrase World War Three is so terrifying for people, Um, This is a very different kind of war, and I don't think it is going to look like World War I or World War II, where lots and lots of civilians were engaged in, you know, direct combat. I think this is a technology war. Uh, This is an invisible war where uh, the combatants fight each other in ways that are not visible to the public. I can elaborate on that. But bottom line is, um, it's still not a great situation. But when I say World War III, I don't mean to imply that we're going to end up in that kind of conflagration. However, what we have now, in my opinion, here on the anniversary of the day the tanks rolled into Ukraine is, uh, well, there's a word that everybody needs to know. There's a word called irredentism. And irredentism is when a nation says, we have nationals abroad that need to be protected. And that was the rationale behind uh, Russia rolling into Ukraine, right? The Russians in Ukraine were under siege and they needed protecting. They're now expanding that strategy to new places like Transnistria, which is on the border of Moldova, and Abkhazia, and places like Basically, places people haven't heard of. You know, Artsakh is another one of them. Svalbard in Norway, I think, is going to be one of them. 
And so it's the same strategy, just expanded to new locations. That's one element. And I'll just finish with the second. The second is the Russians have basically decided to do a reverse Star Wars. So I was an intern working for Ronald Reagan in the White House when they introduced the Star Wars strategy, which was um, laser-based systems in space on satellites. So you could take out the other guy's intercontinental ballistic nuclear missile using this system. And basically, um, it forced the Russians to spend a ton of money they didn't have trying to keep up with the technology. Well, they learned, and today they're reversing. So they're saying, we're going to drop out of the nuclear mutual weapons inspections treaties. We're going to put nuclear weapons on our submarines and our ships, which Norwegian intelligence this week confirmed. Um, and this will force you to spend a huge amount of money monitoring all the borders so that you can catch any potential inbound. So I don't think anybody wants to launch, la actually launch a nuclear weapon, and I want to be clear about that. I do think that raising this threat threshold is going to be enormously expensive for the West. And the real strategy is how to bankrupt the West. When you talk about an invisible war, is, is that part of what you mean? A war, basically a, an economic war, a cash war, let me make you spend a vast amount of money on things that will make it hard for you to manage your economy outside that? Uh, yeah. It's also a little bit more than that. It's about the return of spy games, of kind of Cold War style um, spies that are implanted in Western countries and organizations, and probably it's happening in reverse as well. Um, so the spying game is back. And you can see that if you Google for it, you'll see lots of arrests have been made and spies are being captured. And so that's an element. But it's also things like TikTok, which the U.S. government is about to potentially ban as a basically military instrument, that it's something that's been used by China to weaponize um, public opinion. And so, for example, the Chinese balloons that we recently saw, on one level, could be seen as a highly staged TikTok event that resulted in a reduction of confidence by the American public in their own government. That's a kind of invisible war, right? So there are many layers to it. And again, I've written a piece called Invisible Wars on January 10th this year on my Substack column. It goes into greater detail about this. But it's a, it's a useful concept right now. Okay, and can I just take you back before we move on to one other thing you said about um, uh, Russia wanting or saying that what they're trying to do is protect Russian citizens in other parts of the world. And you mentioned a part of Norway where there may be Russian citizens living. How on earth does that manifest itself? How does Russia uh, uh, do something to protect citizens living in a, in a country such as Norway? Well, so super interesting. First, let's be clear about the geography. There's a place called Svalbard. It's an island in the Arctic Circle. It's extremely remote. I actually went up there this summer. And because of the messy end to World War II, Svalbard has a highly unusual situation that it's, it is technically Norway, but many countries under the Svalbard Treaty have the right to be there. So, for example, I think there are 32 or 34 countries that are signatories. So there's a large Russian population there. Now, historically, they had been involved in coal mining. 
But then the governor of Svalbard shut coal mining down for climate change reasons. And suddenly the Russian nationals who mainly live in Barentsburg in Svalbard suddenly couldn't make an income. So then Russia had to subsidize them to stay. This Now they've just said in the last week or so that they're basically giving away apartments in Svalbard to Russian nationals. So you can just basically have a free place to stay. Why? Because as long as there are Russian nationals physically present on Svalbard, that creates the reason why they might need to be protected. And what we've seen is a much more aggressive stance by Russia around Svalbard. We've seen Russian submarines surfacing. And when you go up there, there are loads of NATO ships. Basically, the whole place is on high alert. And remember, we actually, I, this is just a key point. Um, Svalbard has the fastest internet connection in the world. Why? Because virtually every high altitude satellite, whether commercial or military or the International Space Station, connect to Earth at Svalbard. Why? Do you know, I don't know exactly why. There must be technical reasons for this. I think it does have something to do with it's easier for comms to happen at the poles and it's easier for the North Pole than the South Pole. But for whatever reason, that is the point of connection. And in fact, to my mind, this war that we're seeing in Ukraine didn't begin with the tanks rolling in to Ukraine uh, a year ago. It began about eight weeks earlier when somebody cut that internet cable, thus signaling we can shut down all your communications. And remember, all these missiles need satellite guidance. So none of your systems will work if we cut your comms off. And since then, we've had loads of internet cutting um, examples that are, again, no fingerprints. Nobody knows who did it. Um, this is part of this invisible war that I was talking about. So Svalbard suddenly is on the radar and Russia is trying to re increase the number of Russians who are actually present there. Hmm. With free flats, they could probably get a load of uh, British people to go there too. Yeah. anything for a free right, right. flat. <laughs> totally. Okay, so this is really interesting. So a lot of the invisible war and a lot of what we're going to call World War Three, even though it's a very different kind of war, it happens in places that most of us have no connection with, never heard of and consider, would previously have considered to be completely irrelevant, far distant Norwegian um, islands, etc., Completely. I call them sort of magical kingdoms that uh, sound like they belong in a Harry Potter novel, like Abkhazia and South Ossetia and Artsakh. They do. They do. And, yeah. And if you notice this week, the Russians have been doing military exercises off South Africa, um, where they're working with Eswatini. And, you know, again, uh, for a lot of people, they're like, wait, where's Eswatini? What is that? So, yeah, these magical named, magically named kingdoms, as it were, uh, are right at the heart of modern geopolitics. Okay, everyone's going to need to get an atlas out. I they do actually are. have on the wall of our sitting room <laughs> a giant world map so I can try and, you know, keep some sense of geography. And as soon as we finish talking, paper, I'm going to go down and look on it, see if I can <laughs> find some of these places and get a sense. Um, this is super interesting. No, but listen, okay, so here we are. A different kind of war, lots of strange stuff going on, um, but it doesn't turn, you think, into either a nuclear war, please God let that not happen, um, or into a massive ground war. Uh, so given that, what effects does it have on the thing that we're actually supposed to talk about in, in this podcast on the global economy, for example? What effect does that have on on the the 
way the global economy develops from here on globalization, on energy, on this kind of thing. Okay, so one layer of this very complicated onion uh, is what Russia did was to demonstrate that anything can be weaponized. And so Ukraine is not just a war on the ground. It was about weaponizing food prices and energy prices and creating inflation at a time where the West was very vulnerable to that. Now, what's been the response? Initially, everybody's heating bills obviously went up, and that's been a big social issue, no question about it. But also, there's been this incredible entrepreneurial innovation response. So suddenly, Norway has replaced Russia as the main supplier of oil and gas to Western Europe. Uh, Morocco has replaced Belarus as the main supplier of fertilizers and potash component parts for agriculture. Um, and so it just goes to show you how resilient and robust the world economy is and how quickly it adapts. Similarly, um, this return of conflict, it happened to coincide with COVID as well, has caused a lot of people to say, my goodness, the world is a complicated place and I don't know if I can trust my government or my company to look after me in the future. I'm going to start my own thing. And we see this wave of entrepreneurial response. And I think we're going to see a lot of those companies are going to do well. They're going to create value. People are learning how to work independently from institutions. So while there are bad things happening, there are also really good response functions as well. Now, in terms of the big picture, the markets have been expecting that eventually we'll get a resolution here. What I'm arguing is mm, this may take longer and this may be a more expensive process than you thought. To finish, what China is doing is very clever. So the minute uh, Russia, Putin said nuclear was a real possibility of threat, within an hour, the Chinese came out and said truce, one word, truce. Then they said constructive negotiations. So China doesn't want to go to a nuclear confrontation and neither does the U.S., but by threatening that and by having Russia and China much more aligned than we've ever seen before, it pushes the U.S. and NATO to come to some kind of agreement over Ukraine. So right now we're in a moment where the question really is, is the West going to put pressure on Ukraine to cut a deal? Or are we really going to fight to the bitter end? And I think that the appetite in the West to fight to the bitter end, especially if the Russians are now going to up this ante by taking the Ukraine strategy to uh, many other locations. Basically, it's creating an environment where eventually we're gonna, everybody has to cut an unpalatable deal. Russia won't get it what, what it wants. Ukraine won't get it once. The West won't get what it wants. But we may be able to bring it to an end. And I'll just say one tiny last thing. Otto von Bismarck put this so well. Um, and nobody knows much about diplomacy today as he did during his era when he ran the grand strategy of all Western Europe. And he said, diplomacy is the art of building ladders for others to climb down. And right now, we do not have anybody building any ladders for people to climb down. And even though it's an awful thing to have to do, I think in the end, we're going to have to end up in that place. It's interesting because the rhetoric you hear coming out of the West suggested even if there was an absolutely perfect ladder made of gems, no one would climb down it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was at the conservative party shindig night where Rishi Sunak spoke. And, um, you know, the, the line from the West of we will fight to the end is getting uh, harder, stronger. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, given everything that's happened, one of the things that we've been talking about a lot over the years, and I think you and I have talked about before, is the reversal of the great globalization of the last couple of decades and the effect that that will have on uh, individual economies and on inflation. Now, do you still think that globalization will continue to go or go backwards? I know you're terribly optimistic in lots of areas. So where, where do you see that going, the rebuilding of supply chain resilience, et cetera, which has given us bouts of inflation over the last couple of years? Uh, how do you see that playing out over the next couple? Totally. Um, so I had to make up a new word for... You always uh, make up I new know. words. Your words are great. <laughs> you know, by the way, uh, listeners who aren't used to hearing Pippa speak, it was Pippa, I believe, who invented the, the word shrinkflation, right? And what other well, words are yours? Well, here's the thing, actually. It turns out, so I did. I, I, I came up with this word shrinkflation, and I remember talking to your your conference about it at the time, you know, this was back in like 2016 or earlier, um, because um, there wasn't a word to describe this thing about your candy bars at the shop keep getting smaller, but you're paying the same price. And it's an early indicator that inflation is building and it's going to come. But then it got into the Merriam-Webster dictionary this year, which was amazing. It's amazing. However, now it turns out there are some other people who were also using it, but I didn't know it at the time. So I think it's an open question who really invented it. But a bunch of us kind of spotted that there was a need for a new word. So today, my new word is glocalization. And what that means is globalization and localization coming together. And I think that is where we are with globalization. So The old definition of globalization was really that all the jobs would go to China, right? We just said, okay, we're going to outsource all manufacturing of hardware to China and software will be done in the West. And that was the definition of globalization. Well, today we have a situation where we are relocalizing supply chains. We are manufacturing everywhere in the world now. And because China isn't competitive anymore, 
through inflation, through their slowdown, through the the the, the destroyed belief that they're going to get rich before they get old. They don't believe this anymore, so they're not working in the same way they were. All, all that taken together means that we have a relocalization of production everywhere. And I think fundamentally, we're going to end up with more competition, uh, more market entrance, uh, a greater distribution of jobs around the world instead of just everything going only to China. And so globalization is a more advanced, more comprehensive version of globalization than what we used to have. It's a it's a better version, actually, even though it's been a hard process to get here. Now, the problem for China and the problem for the world is that if they're not competitive anymore, we can't just say to a billion people, oh, well, too bad for you, right? We have to find a way to reintegrate those billion workers into the world economy in some way or another. And that is our sort of task of our generation now. And I would add that we have to do it with Russia too. You know, it's it's not that every Russian citizen supports what President Putin is doing. And you can't just cancel economies, right? You can't just say, oh, well, everyone in Russia has to suffer forever because they once had a bad leader. I mean, heck, I'd hate to be held accountable for any of our recent US presidents, right, as an American citizen. So when, one day when something changes and we get a deal, we're all going to have to figure out how to reverse on a dime and reintegrate all those brilliant Russians who had nothing to do with all this back into the world economy. And unpalatable as all that sounds right now, I think it's essential because if we don't reintegrate the Chinese and the Russians, we will end up in this fight again. Okay, but how do you reintegrate those tens of millions of Chinese workers who may now be slightly priced out of the global market when it comes to making low-cost goods? How does that turn around? Well, and it's further complicated because uh, President Xi has introduced the Great Digital Wall, as they're calling it, which is he cut off access to the global internet. So if you're in China, you cannot connect to the top four or 5,000 websites and how are you going to innovate if you don't know where the cutting edge of innovation is? Um, and so I'm very concerned that the leadership in China are making it impossible for the average person to figure out a better way forward, right? In the West, we can do it because we have personal freedoms, which we often take for granted. But, you know, you can just up sticks as many people have, right? The great quitting that we all talk about. And they say, oh, I'm just going to start my own thing. I'll be a digital nomad. I'll go create online. I'll... We don't even think about how wonderful it is to have that freedom. And in China, you don't have that freedom. Um, not only can they not connect to the internet, but they have the social credit system now where you get scored on all your behaviors. And so if you express opinions that are contrary to the government, you try to go buy a train ticket, but your card won't work. So they start locking you into digital prisons, physical spaces that you can't burst out of, um, and thought processes that you can't burst out of. None of this is conducive to productivity. So I think within China, there's been a big argument, and Xi has been under pressure from the party as the party begins to realize that China's future is being impeded by this strategy. 
Yeah, do we need to worry about about social credit systems coming to the UK? There's lots of conversation around uh, digital ID cards and the type of information that can and can't be held on on those cards, etc. And it is making the kind of people who worry about this sort of thing, and I have a tendency to worry about this sort of thing myself, say, you know, we look at China and uh, we're horrified by by the digital control systems there, but this could be coming to the West. I think it has come to the West. We've done it uh, with private companies, right? We do it with Amazon and Google and every company that you interact with. Um, and for me, the issue is people always say, well, I have nothing to hide. And then I ask, okay, when's the last time you ordered ice cream on Uber Eats at midnight? And they're like, uh, yeah, I do that. Okay, like, okay, so do you think you have nothing to hide? But the thing is the correlations um, that the algorithms generate will tend to say that someone who eats ice cream at midnight is maybe a little bit emotionally unstable. And then that shows up as someone does a digital search on you. And when you're applying for a job and they see that red flag and now you didn't get the job because you've ordered Uber Eats, right? And do you think, oh, but it's all anonymized? Yeah, it's not so anonymized anymore. I mean, it's pretty easy to reverse engineer things. Um, so I think, you know, for all our GDPR, the reality is that you have a digital footprint and it is... It knows more about, your digital twin knows more about you than you know about yourself. And the footprint that you are leaving with every single thing you do is visible. It's just not visible to you. So I'm very concerned about this intensification of the digitization, which by the way is coming in the form of new currency, which is to the core of their, your podcast, right? This is an entirely new form of money that's coming, which we call CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. What that will permit is the integration of all of your data, everything on your phone, everything on your computer, everything uh, that has to do with your spending. And that comprehensive picture, in my view, were, is, can be used against you and you should have some kind of a bill of human rights to either be able to ask to see, I think you should be able to go to every company, like you should be able to go to Marks and Sparks and say, tell me what I look like to you. And then it's like a credit, like you should be able to look at your credit record and say, what's going on? And you find out there's something you didn't know. So you change your behavior to lift your credit score. I think we're gonna need this. And I think it's a reasonable ask, but oh boy, the big data gathering firms and government are probably going to fight this to the bitter end. So I think, you know, it brings some many efficiencies that are very useful, lots of transparency. Um, I wish government would apply it to its own balance sheet and we'd have a better sense of, you know, how public spending is working, um, which I kind of doubt will happen. Well, all tyranny starts with convenience, doesn't it? I love that line. Who said, is that yours? That's a great I, th line. I think it might be. Someone else must well, have said it first. that's a serious... <laughs> okay, I'm putting that up on the net. <laughs> that's a great line. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. starts with convenience. Yes. Um, 
You know, I mean, I think lots of our do li- uh, listeners do worry about CBDCs because we've talked a lot over the last uh, few years about how a digital currency, a bank-sponsored digital currency, is effectively the loss of the loss of the last vestige of your privacy, and also, of course, it could conceivably uh, come with negative interest rates applied to your cash, and could come with uh, spending constraints in various areas. You know, a, a government could decide that actually, you know, what with the tomato shortage, no one's allowed to buy tomatoes or cucumbers, and uh, that can go through um, a. Digital digital currency in ways that would we would all find extremely uncomfortable. So that's something that I think our, our listeners are, are very interested in. And thank you for scaring them more. Sorry. <laughs> but, you know, it's like I'm just the messenger here. Here we have the prime minister of Britain saying he wants Britain to be the center for digital asset clearing. Now, on the one hand, judge, there are going to be some big benefits to the country if it can become the center of digital asset clearing. But on the other hand, it does mean that this Bitcoin concept um, is going to get rolled out. And now is the time for the public to express their concerns and desires instead of being ignorant or staying silent. So that's why I'm raising the flag and waving it around on this. We can make this work. We just have to participate and not allow it to be a purely technocratic rollout. Now, let me ask you then, now we're touching on digital currency, so let me ask you about where you see inflation going from here. I know you've got a, a good record of inflation, as previously discussed, but you know where the world is now dividing into two camps, people who say once inflation has gone beyond 8%, it's really, really hard to get it down. And so we're going to hover around 6, 7, something for, for quite a long time. And the other camp who is saying, well, actually, we're going straight to deflation. Where do, where do you stand? Yeah, so I have not felt that we're going into hyperinflation. Let's just start at that end of the spectrum. I do think this is tricky because all the textbooks don't apply to what we're in right now. It's a supply side and a demand side problem. Usually what you do, and all the textbooks say, if you raise interest rates, then inflation will come down. But right now, we don't have enough companies making things, whether it's tomatoes, you know, growing things, or whether it's um, computer chips, or you, you could put pretty much anything in that in that line, you know. So how are you going to get more companies to make more stuff? You need to supply capital. So rise, raising interest rates is not helping to increase the supply. So, you know, this idea that the two are correlated is just not really working anymore. And second, this is another reason why CBDCs are probably coming, because governments see that with digital currency, you can double or have the money supply in a single keystroke. So then not only that, but you can direct it. So with traditional monetary policy, you announce, you know, you're giving away free money and you're lowering interest rates and basically all the cash goes to the banks and then the banks allocate that capital out, which they typically don't really actually do very well. Under CBDC, they can say, oh, you're building a new nuclear fusion plant and we want that. So we're going to allocate capital to you. Oh, but you are building something. We think there's already too much of it. So we're not going to allocate capital to you. And the danger is that government starts to get into the business of allocating capital to winners and losers, which they are historically just terrible at. And it would be a defiance of the whole system of capitalism, which should allow capital to flow where investors see 
uh, opportunities, not where government designates there's a socially engineered outcome they want. You know, the other thing is, yes, supply chains are relocalizing, which means supply is is more readily available locally, great. Um, but it means you have to change your habits. So for example, the business of buying raspberries in January is not so easy in the, in an inflation world. But if people stop buying raspberries in January and they change their habits, then the inflation isn't so bad, right? Because the demand for that expensive thing is declining. I think people are changing their habits, their consumption habits in quite a remarkable way. COVID is probably most responsible for that. People have really shifted and started to think about what's really important to me. And do I really need to spend money on raspberries in January? Do I really need to um, be on a career path of a particular kind? Like the question of what do I really need has changed. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, and so, you know, behavior changes can obviously change the path of inflation. So it sounds to me like that, that like you are a uh, four to five percenter. Yeah, I would say that's a good description of me. I mean, I anticipated we were going to go to double digit, which again, at the time, people were like, that is insane. We will never in the West go to double digit inflation. I'm like, we will watch it, watch it. So we we have jumped up, right? So we could be more like a five to 10, five to 10%. I think we may face that for a while. And that's still pretty shocking for pretty shocking for populations that are used used to inflation knocking around one, two, three percent. It's still it's a shocking business and it makes you wonder something I talk about with several guests is will the central bank shift their inflation targets? You know, will they shift the target to meet the rate of inflation rather than uh, hoping that the rate of inflation will come down to meet the target? The target, of course, being almost entirely random. No one can remember. I often ask people, you know, do you know where the two percent came from? And of course most people haven't got the faintest idea. It was picked out of thin air. It was. Well, we've actually found, John and I found, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, we actually found in an old magazine uh, called Status, which is now defunct, in an issue of that from the early 60s, we found um, a report on the paper that an academic had written where he made the suggestion that possibly, conceivably, 2% inflation was roughly the right amount uh, to encourage growth in a developed economy. (laughs) New Zealand, New Zealand academic. I know. I've talked to central bankers about this, and they're like, it's just totally random. We picked it out of thin air. The real issue is, what is the pain tolerance of the public? And then the really big issue, and this is the critical issue, is how are we going to fund the future? That's that's the real basic question. And because there's so much debt, inflation is a way of getting rid of debt. So if you say 2% inflation is okay, what you're really saying is we erode the debt burden by that much. And that shouldn't be so much pain for the general public. But when you get up into these higher numbers, it's just more pain. So you get more political uh, volatility, which we're seeing, right? We're definitely seeing more political volatility. And this is the question of like, what's the pain tolerance over the coming years for what's required to fix all this. Just to be clear, in the end, look, we've had much worse inflation than 10%. People will figure it out. They will adjust. There will be solutions. So it's not that it's impossible, right? I, I When I was a kid, we got to, what was it, 21% inflation. 
and everybody's still here, right? They survived, so we'll, we'll figure it out. It's just uncomfortable. We'll figure it out. Yeah, and uh, and you know, with a bit of like that level of inflation, will if we and maybe we save four or five percent for for a decade, and we'll find that our levels of uh, government debt have gone down very significantly relative to GDP, and that will not be a bad thing. Uh, might be uncomfortable on the way, but it's a good result. It's a good result. Now, listen, Pepper, I have to ask you because uh, here we are. We've talked a lot about the global environment, the geopolitical environment, the global economy, inflation, etc. But what on earth does an investor do in an environment like this? So, you know, here we are, us ordinary retail investors, sitting here with our ICEs and our auto enrollment pensions, going, "Oh God, one day I want to retire." Uh, what do we do? Where would you put money now? Well, so. Let's start with the word retire, um, which I think is being retired. I don't say retired. no one ever gets to retire. <laughs> I want well, to retire one day. I hear you. Well, but what's the definition of retire in the modern era? It's not this old 1950s, 60s idea that you stop and then you spend the rest of your life playing golf. I don't think that really works anymore. The fastest growing uh, component of the labor market now in the U.S. and in the U.K. are the over 55s. Now, why is that? Because frankly, they realize they're going to live till they're 100 and they don't want to be bored. Now, are they going back to a full-time job? No, but they are going back to a portfolio. So they'll be like working with a friend on an entrepreneurial project and they'll do some consulting for their old boss. And they're, you know, they, they create a portfolio of different income streams. And this also gives them something that's productive to do. And I do think human beings are healthier and happier when they have identity, that they have meaningful work. And so I think that's happening and I can't say that's a bad thing. That also brings all that knowledge and wisdom back into the economy. I always thought it was crazy that we fire people automatically at 60. I'm like, wait, aren't those people maybe the most valuable people to have around? Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. No, I entirely agree with you. Okay, so let me redefine retirement for you. Let me redefine retirement as being the ability to choose when, how, and where you work. 
be the ability to afford to do that. So that's what we want. I think when we hit maybe 55, pushing 60, what we want is to be able to fully afford to say, do you know what? There's just one afternoon on that for me and I'm going to play golf for two days and then maybe I will do another half day consulting for so-and-so. So it's still, even with the new definition of, of, of retirement or growing old, et cetera, it's still nonetheless a financial equation. Agreed. And the choice options are fewer in the current environment, which is why people feel like I wanted to retire, but I'm not able to yet. So that's one piece of this. Second piece of it is, you know, look, as interest rates go up, there are lots of uh, very conservative things that are paying better. You know, bonds look good. And that is what everybody was complaining about a decade ago, right? So now you can make money being in bonds government bonds, you know, corporate bonds. And also because of all this innovation and technology, and people forget that, you know, the phone in your pocket literally has more computational power than we needed to send a human to the moon, right? People are able to create income streams using their phone in ways that were unimaginable 20 years ago. And they are so... That means there are lots of new startups. And I mentioned the wave of startups. And if you Google that, you'll see Bloomberg did a piece a little while ago about um, this incredible wave of startups that's occurring. Now, startups are fascinating to me because our biggest pools of savings, our pension funds, basically can't invest in them because, number one, they're too small. So they can't absorb very much capital. And number two, they're very risky. And that number three, they don't really move the performance dial for big institutional investors. And for little investors, they're just too crazy risky. But it, it's so strange because this is the part of the economy that generates most of the net new jobs, is firms that employ less than 50 people. And it definitely is the source of most of the new innovation. Like this week, I was talking at Rolls-Royce. And they have to figure out how to interface with little startups because they're the ones with the coolest new technology. It's not coming out of the big majors anymore. So we need to find a way for the people in your audience to be able to engage with earlier stage startups than we have been able to. I also think there's a 94% failure rate of startups in the United Kingdom, which is considered one of the best performing startup markets in the world, right? At a 94% failure rate. So we should ask the question, why are they all failing? And often it has to do with things that are so easily fixed. It's because they have a brilliant idea, but it's never occurred to them, how do you actually run a business? So they don't know how to set up a data room for the investors, or they don't understand what kind of legal framework they're going to need to create the business. These are things that are fixable. We, we could lift the success rate of startups. And I would say that everyone in your audience has an interest in being able to engage and invest in that space and getting a higher success rate. But you have to be able to accept that, you know, like private equity firms, they go, we're going to invest in 20 things and 17 are going to fail. And three of them are really going to pay well. They're going to, one one will go, 
Yeah, sounds like John and I need to write more about VCTs and private equity. John's been writing a bit about private equity recently. He's, he's interested there. I'm always mildly suspicious of the structure of the private equity sector. But, you know, we'll write more on that. Um, Piva, let me ask you one last thing, which I'm afraid I ask everybody because I'm fascinated in it and the answers. Um, do you hold any cryptocurrencies? Would you be a buyer of cryptocurrencies, in particular of, of Bitcoin? So I don't, um, but I'm very active in following this new technology. And I, I'm, I've not been a big Bitcoiner. Oh gosh, now I'm going to get hit on Twitter, aren't I, for saying? Yep, you are. <laughs> but I have been very big on crypto. I have said this is a fundamentally new technology. It's about um, decentralizing the world of finance. And it's a democratization of finance that's very important. But that doesn't mean that every single business model that is within crypto is good. So the, the shakeout that we've seen in crypto, you know, the whole Sam Bankman freed disaster, people went, that's it, crypto's dead. And I'm like, no, no. Yeah, that was me. That was me. Oh, okay, that was okay. me. Crypto, that was definitely me. Crypto's dead. <laughs> okay. But I think this is like um, when the dot-com bubble burst and everybody was like, that's it. That's the end of the internet. We're done. And actually, it was the beginning. And the reason is you had the shakeout of all the really bad business models around the internet that didn't make any sense. And the ones that survived, which weren't many, were good business models. And so I'm watching the crypto space for these better business models that will now begin to exist. And again, as government goes to CBDC, they're going to say, I think they're going to say, crypto is fine. You can have crypto if you want, which has not been their position to date. But I think they're going to say it's okay. But there are two provisos. Number one, it can't be held anonymously. And number two, you have to declare it. Now, the Bitcoin crowd is going to say, but the whole point of being a Bitcoin is to be anonymous and not have to declare my money to the government. I'm like, well, good luck with that, because the state is the state. So, you know, you can't run and hide. This is, you're going to have to pay your taxes and be part of the system. Um, or you could try to find some island somewhere, but, you know, good luck with that. So, and the Sam Bankman-Fried case is going to demonstrate this, that and I actually will go further and say, I think the U.S. government and maybe the British government are going to end up being the biggest holders of Bitcoin and crypto assets through confiscation. <laughs> yeah, oh, really? Yeah, because as you confiscate all these assets, then you're going to, if you're at Treasury and you're at the Justice Department, you're in your FBI, you're like, hey, I just confiscated $4 billion worth of crypto, which was the first big enforcement case that they did. That's how much they got. Now, are they going to say that's worthless? No, they would much rather say, no, this has real value and it's ours now and we can spend it. I mean, that's more than the annual budget of, you know, most government agencies. So I do think we're going to see crypto that is compliant. Now, that's a whole bunch of people are going to say, well, that defeats the whole point of crypto. And I say, well, I don't think so. I think that we'll see a place for um, this democratizing of finance, this, um, this dividing up of the capital flows that crypto permits. It's just is going to be compliant with the new CBDC arrangements. Okay, yeah, you're 
definitely getting kicked back on oh, Twitter for that. Okay. I, I can feel it coming. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we should end it there. I've taken up enough of your time. Uh, but th- I'll tell you what we didn't do. We didn't talk about space. We're going to have to talk about oh, space next time. We You're- have to talk. By the way, that all is... Right, okay, all right, I mean, we space, have to do that. On. We have to do that. <laughs> Especially here in Britain, because I think the British public are totally not getting that Britain's space sector is going to be massive. I would say it's going to be on a par with the city. It's it, this is going to generate cash flows for this country that are extraordinary. And people are like, what? First of all, why are we even going into space? We've got all these problems here on Earth. And the real answer is because you can solve virtually every earthbound problem with a space-based solution, including unlimited energy, unlimited resources. Okay, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. How can we get unlimited energy from space? This is about the sun and mirrors. It is. It, it is. is. Yeah. And Airbus has now done the test and shown it works. By the way, we already knew it worked because militaries knew it worked. All you're doing is put a mirror on a satellite, you beam the sun's rays to Earth in the form of mainly radio waves, and suddenly you can have cheap, unlimited energy anywhere, anytime. And notice that the Saudis have just invested with the British to build this capacity in the North Sea. So, you know, this is not like sci-fi. This is totally coming. And I have friends who are building the prototypes for these things. This will be in two and a half, three years. We're going to see this wow. live and it okay. works. Now so that we can is stop worrying about the energy crisis. I do. I, stop worrying about the energy crisis completely. Honestly, it's going to be we wake up one morning and we're going to go, holy moly. And here's the big problem. What the heck is that going to mean for oil and gas companies? I think their share price is going to get hit hard by this reality that's coming. So there's a whole bunch more to say, but Britain is at the forefront of this and the U.S. wants them to be in that um, position. So it's an area that I would be investing in. I would be watching carefully and understanding the implications for other industries, including, by the way, I know this sounds so science fiction, but mining of asteroids. And suddenly you don't need to rip up Earth anymore and mining companies on Earth are going to find they're confronting really high-grade silicon, really high-grade cobalt, really high-grade gold that you are getting from an entirely new location. And it doesn't create environmental problems. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the space space that's worthy of attention. So I write about that, too, on my Substack column. I have a couple of columns called the Space Space Okay. Uh, okay. One last question, then I'm going to ask you to give us the address of that subsect so okay. we can go sign up. But why Why the UK? Why? I mean, you keep saying this is a wonderful opportunity for the UK and we're right at the forefront of this, but why, why are we at the forefront of it? I mean, I'm thrilled, but why us? I think it's partly because the United States wants Britain as their closest defense ally to be deeply engaged in this. It's partly because... I think it's the imperial empire past. Um, So the British have a sense of the world and possibility. And one of the things, the earliest stage of the space space is communications. And so the British are very involved in satellite networks for internet connectivity, for example. Um, British are very strong on the international internet cabling process around the world, submarines, etc., all that is connected to this building out of internet access via space, right? Like today, only 3% of most internet connections happen via Starlink and space. In the future, I think that's going to go to like 90%, right? 
right? It's, and so because the British have this global view and this history of working with different parts of the world, they are actually very involved in the communication sector and therefore involved in that space. And let's face it, the British are very strong on things like mining globally. So uh, the clever miners are going, hey, we have a whole new domain to work in. So I, I think we're going to, and uh, the launch that we recently saw, and you and I talked about all the new launch locations here in the UK, the one in um, Cornwall and the one you've been to up in Scotland. I've been the one in Shetland. Yes, yes, I have. Yeah, you said there was not much there. It's not very exciting. Not much there, to. but there will be. But there, there will be. be. That's right. Well, right now, everybody's focused on launch. I think launch is almost over. Like, we already know we can launch. The issue is what you're going to do in space. And I think the build in space is coming. And again, Britain's very good at um, robotics, remote control, automation, right? I've you know been involved in, in manufacturing drones here in the UK. I know the British can be very competitive in this space. Um, so, by the way, just to finish, I'll just say this. When you think about the space space, I think there are going to be a ton of jobs created by this, but you won't need to go into space. I think we're going to find there are a whole bunch of people that are sitting here on the ground here in Britain, working every day, managing assets that are in space. That's the future that I see. Well, there we go, everybody. Not just global Britain, but intergalactic. It's seriously, Britain. interplanetary. Pretty and I'm good. not joking. Right. <laughs> give, give us your Substack address. I, I can feel everybody wanting to read more about this. Yeah, drpippa.substack.com. And it's listed as Dr. Pippa's pen and podcast. But I haven't launched the podcast yet, but I will be. You better get on with that. I know, bit. I will. It's going to be will. brilliant. <laughs> thank oh, you. Pippa, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely fantastic. We're so grateful. So great to be on with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We will be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, and I can't think that you wouldn't, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Samasadi, additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks, of course, to Pippa Malgram and to John Stepek and his many UFO sightings. And of course, our weekly reminder to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. Link is in the show notes. You will not regret signing up. Right, one more special announcement. I will be doing a live taping of this podcast at the Bloomberg Invest event on the 22nd of March. It's called Strategies for Wealth Creation. If you're in London, you can join in person. Everyone else join online. The link is in the show notes. So do please register. We would love to see you there. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.